2: Welcome back to the show, friends and family. Fast 9 is releasing in theaters at the end of this month, so today we are covering what is now considered a favorite in the Fast franchise that arguably turned a lot of people into fans and carried the franchise to where it is today and may have inspired the guy talking right now to get more excited about F9. And that is, of course, the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. The movie is 37% rotten on the tomato meter, but it does have a 69% fresh audience score. And our guest today... I am so excited to talk to her as well as our co-host, Jacqueline Coley. But our guest is the drift queen herself, Jen Yamato. She is a film critic, I'm sure you know, and a co-host of the LA Times podcast, Asian Enough. And she's going to give us a sneak peek into her thoughts on this movie, what it means for the future of the franchise, what it means about the world at large. Jen, I am so excited to talk to you about this. Justice for Han, indeed. I kick off with a question we ask everyone. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about Tokyo Drift?
3: Well, I have to say, first of all, the R- Rotten Tomatoes audience score—nice, nice going, guys. Uh, <laughs> the critic score, however, I'm so disappointed. Rotten Tomatoes is wrong.
2: All right, Rotten Tomatoes—a resounding wrong from Jen, although she does agree with the audience score, but maybe it could be even a little bit higher. Brian, let's get that show intro music cooking, my man. In a moment, we're going to break down how we feel about this film, and we're going to do some behind-the-scenes trivia later on in the show, as we always do. But first, Jacqueline Coley, you are here joining me as always in 30 seconds or less, or gone in 60 seconds perhaps. Tell us, what is Tokyo Drift? all about
1: well in tokyo drift we follow a new cast of characters to the french uh, fast and furious franchise um namely the main character played by Lucas Black. He plays Sean Boswell, who he's been in trouble for his entire life because of women and cars. And so he gets into some trouble with a very aggro sort of uh, high schooler at the beginning of this, and he is shipped off to Tokyo. And upon arriving in Tokyo, even though he shows absolutely no reason for an entire host of Asian people to think that he's worthy of their attention or their love, he becomes the center narrative. And mostly due to the fact that girls just love him as the outsider, but mostly because Han Lu adopts him into his sort of crew. He is the partner of the Tokyo Drift King played by Brian T. And throughout the course of the film, Sean gets deeper into the underworld of Tokyo Drift street racing. He figures out in a matter of a montage how to be great at it. And through the host of a bunch of minority characters that lift him up throughout, he becomes the king of all and races Dom Toretto at the end. And if that synopsis (laughs) does not tell you how I feel about (laughs) Mr. Lucas Black, and Sean Boswell I hope you understand it now but in all things the cars the style Justin Lin's direction and of course I will add Mr. Sung Kang playing Han Lu, uh, playing Han Lui is perfect so there you go.
2: Thank you, at least for that shout out. And I will note, it's like two montages it takes him to learn how to drift properly. So, it you know, one montage can get you a clean uh, fraternity house and Revenge of the Nerds. But you need two montages to learn how to drift properly. We welcome in Producey Lucy. Hello, Lucy.
1: Hi. Real quick shout out. I have a new celebrity crush.
3: Han.
2: Oh, OK. Yeah. Yes. Woo. Sun Kang. Okay.
1: Yes, he's worthy of crush. He's been worthy of crush for a while though. But yes, after this, I'm gonna Google a YouTube a billion interviews with him. Okay, that's all. Watch Better Look. Watch Better Look tomorrow first, then do that because Mm -hmm. you need to see Better Look tomorrow because he's even more dreamy in Better Look tomorrow, in my personal opinion.
2: It is one of the things that I was enlightened to from our expert researcher, Mark Hoffmeyer, is the order to watch the fast movies in. And apparently, I think I'm actually doing okay just because I came to Tokyo Drift as of this podcast. Like, this is the first time that I saw the movie, never seen it before. And man, am I pumped to talk about it. I'll ask Jacqueline first because we already got Jen's opinion on whether Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. Jacqueline, we heard your synopsis. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about Tokyo Drift?
1: Rotten Tomatoes would be wrong if they deleted the entire Sean character. Then this movie, in my opinion, would be 75% certified fresh at least because everything else in this movie is amazing. (laughs) But because of him, and I'm literally putting this all on his his shoulders, this movie deserves its score. But it's only because
2: of him. Wow, okay. Lucas Black, not the broadest shoulders in the world. So that's going to be... Tough for him to bear. I'm going to say that Rotten Tomatoes is wrong because I agree with Jen Yamato. I really had a ball watching this movie so much so that it reminded me why I love the Fast and Furious movies in the first place and why I've sort of gotten away from them a little bit, because obviously we're talking about this movie, Fast 9 or F9 or Furious 9. It's, it's a Fast and Furious movie. It's the ninth one, and it's coming out soon in theaters, may already be out in some places. And this movie got me pumped to go see F9. I didn't go to some of the press screenings. I was very nice to be offered, but I didn't want to go. And now I kind of want to go more now than ever. So we're going to hear our opinions on the movie scenes, on behind the scenes. And again, a couple trivia questions at the end of the show. But before we do any of that, let's hear from our review curation manager, the one, the only Tim Ryan for Two Minutes with Tim. Two
4: minutes with Tim. To get this out of the way at the top, the critics basically felt that the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift had lots of awesome car stuff, very little character development or memorable dialogue, and a decided lack of Vin Diesel and Paul Walker. Later installments of the Fast and Furious franchise would tie Tokyo Drift into the overall narrative. But when it came out in 2006, it was sort of greeted by critics anyway as an attempt to keep a franchise moving without its charismatic stars. This movie's acquired something of a cult classic status as part of the franchise, but it was easy at the time to think that, well, this franchise is kind of out of steam. It was kind of a box office disappointment when it came out in 2006. Its opening weekend, it finished behind another car movie called Cars and also Nacho Libre. So, yeah. The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift is rotten at 37% on the Tomatometer with 137 reviews, but it does have a 69% audience score. So what did the critics have to say? In a rotten review, Michael Wilmington of the Chicago Tribune wrote, For all its crashes and flash, this is a movie that drifts away as we watch it. Muscle cars and all, it's often a waste of gas. However, in a fresh review, Michael Sragau of the Baltimore Sun wrote, the opening half hour may prove to be a disreputable classic of pedal to the metal filmmaking. So anyway, folks, that's the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Was this one spinning its wheels or did it cross the finish line or car things?
2: That is our guy, Tim Ryan. Yeah, this movie does itself no favors with a critic simply because it's based around cars, and so you're going to get a lot of those. Uh, so it many just puns runs out of gas. Oh, the no, puns what? write
3: themselves. Can <laughs> I? Can I have to interject something? I've known Tim Ryan, Rotten Tomatoes editor yeah. Tim Ryan, for so long because I too once worked at Rotten Tomatoes as an yes. editor, and I was listening to one of your recent episodes about the major motion picture Titanic.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And I do believe Tim might have left out a very important detail. I I always thought, I, if I am remembering this right, that Tim might have seen that movie like six or seven times in the theater.
0: <laughs> I
1: do remember him talking about this. Actually, he did talk about Titanic and how and many times he saw it.
3: Th- that did not make it into his two minutes with Tim. Two minutes with
2: Tim. Oh wow! Anyway. Okay, well, we got to give, uh, re- Lucy, remind us to give Tim three minutes next week so he can explain <laughs> himself with the whole Titanic <laughs> thing. And we should make another note when we're talking about water movies is that uh, Jack and I got our fans very excited last week talking about this Deep Blue Sea musical that I thought was real, that we hoped was real. We don't actually know if it's real. We don't think it's real. So, Mark Hoffmeyer, sorry to get you out of bed. You can go back and take a nap now. We don't believe Deep Sea, uh, Deep Blue Sea is a real musical, but we do know is real. It's a
1: real play. I actually it's figured it's, it's a real play that actually okay. starred the late Helen McCroy, who okay. just recently passed Damian Lewis's wife. It was a play. That's why. So he did direct it. It was his thing, but it's
3: not the LL Cool JT. Blue Wait, scene. was it a play based on the movie, though? <laughs> no, not mm, at all.
2: They're completely where, yeah, I separate. See.
1: And I so, see. Look, you like, can
2: ask anybody including Katy perry's halftime show it's hard to pull off sharks in performance art like that so let's get away from that tangent and wait wait one second though back onto the track perhaps
1: okay get back on the track but i want to just say used the
2: car analogy you can't derail i
1: know i just want to give a shout out to og rt jen is og (laughs) rt i just want to shout her out because she knows where the bodies are buried that's it. No, this is a
0: <laughs>
2: this is a cool connective tissue that we have. It's almost like we're building our own Fast and Furious crew because people are coming back into the fold now and it's exciting like and we're all what- here. Today and this movie for a long time, Tokyo Drift was just considered sort of like like the, the, the bastard love child of the franchise because it was rotten, it didn't make as much money as most of the other films, and it was very separate, obviously, because it lacked the stars, Vin Diesel and Paul Walker, for the most part. But over the years, and in no small part, thanks to Jen's barbecues, it's become so beloved that the whole series is now sort of relying on the backstory of that movie. So without further ado, Brian, hit the music. Let's talk about this. There's so many scenes that I'm so uh, (laughs) thrilled to be able to talk about because, again, I did not know this movie was going to have this effect on me. And sometimes when we're doing a movie like Cats, I'm excited to talk about it for a different reason. Jen, I I do want to start with you here. What is a movie scene within Tokyo Drift that you're like, yeah, that's why the audience is right and the critics are wrong?
3: I love the drifting scenes in this movie, which were done practically, and I think if you revisit Tokyo Drift, as I have been urging people to do for years now, if you revisit and reconsider Tokyo Drift, which, as you said, was unfairly maligned for so long, I think that there's more appreciation in hindsight. To 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 grant this movie, and one of the things that, especially now, we've seen the the movies get bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more computer graphic based in terms of action. Uh, but Tokyo Drift, all the drifting that you see for the most part is done practically. They they tapped the actual drift kings of the time to do stunt driving. So one of my very favorite scenes in this movie and in any car movie is this beautiful operatic drift up the the circular garage in Sean Boswell's first race against DK.
4: You know what DK stands for? Donkey Kong?
0: Drift King. Drift. What do you mean, Drift?
2: It it's is so, so cool because that's the race that that's his first race in in Tokyo once he gets transplanted there, as, as Jacqueline mentioned in her synopsis. And so, you know that this guy's got some game. He's got a lot of raw talent because we saw him racing the high school bully in the opening of the movie. But we know that he's out of his element here. And then when it comes to drifting, Jacqueline... Watching that scene, I was like, this kid is going to need at least four montages to get this drifting thing right. Because the way that DK, who's the the, the antagonist in the movie, is hooked up with a Yakuza. He's going up the ramp and he's like the car sideways the whole time, but just through gears and levers and hitting the pedal on the gas and steering the right way and doing all these other cool drifting things. He is able to get that modified car to the top. And you're like, how is this kid from alabama or wherever the hell he's from gonna be able to replicate that in real life probably never would but this is not real life this is the fast and the furious. So I love what Jen said there. And I will add to that, that one of my favorite scenes was the climax when we're racing down the mountain, because it was just so thrilling. I really did not know what was going to happen. Even though I've seen subsequent movies in the franchise, I had no idea who was going to win. What was going to be the fate of the loser? Were they going to survive? Were they just going to fall off the mountain? I just found that to be so well directed, well shot. I, instantly wanted to get in my Ford Fusion and go drive up a mountain. Luckily, it was at night and I didn't. And I slept, which is what everybody should do after seeing any of these movies. Take an Uber to your next appointment. You should not be trusted Mm -hmm. behind the wheel. So it's a a lot of racing stuff. As far as Jen and I go, Jacqueline, do you have a scene that can articulate how you feel and why you feel the way you do about Tokyo Drift?
1: Yes, and I will say this. I don't want anyone to think that I'm just beating up on the random white boy in this. Paul Walker was one of the linchpins of this franchise. We miss him dearly every single day, and he was that outsider coming in and very much didn't understand the world that he was getting into, but the way they handled that character in the original and in other films was just with so much more care than what they did with this uh, Lucas Black character, Sean Boswell. It was just not, no. No. The scene that illustrates this for me is there's a great scene. It's, um, it's Han and it's Sean and they're standing on a balcony. And the question that anyone who doesn't understand why Sean is even in this world and even remotely part of it is asking, it's like, why did you hand me your keys to your car that opening night? Why did you decide to do this? And Han gives this like. Venus and Serena serve of a line read where he talks about, hey, man, you know, I'm here because I had to kind of run away. This is my Mexico. This is me. You know, I had to leave some bad things that happened. That's the the events of better luck tomorrow. And I need to know that the people around me have some character and that they'd be willing. So the fact that you caught those keys and would go up against the dude you should not go up against, that's the guy that I can go into battle with.
0: Why'd you let me race with your car? You knew I was gonna wreck
4: it. Why not? Because it's a lot of money. I have money. It's trust and character I need around me. You know who you choose to be around you lets you know who you are. You one car in exchange for knowing what a man's made of. That's a price I can live with.
1: And it's honestly the best character development that that character has. And he didn't even say it <laughs> like and that illustrates why he is the albatross of this movie. And on top of it all, his acting like we're like, 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 You're talking
2: about <laughs> Lucas Black.
1: Yeah, Lucas Black, okay. his acting. I'm talking Pinocchio wooden log cabin wooden. I mean, Han <laughs> is giving him so much like pathos and and, and emotion behind it. And like, look, man, I'm a man without a country in more ways than you can understand, but I'm just looking to find my little ragtag group of folks that I can trust. And you showed me in that moment that you could be somebody that I could trust. It's all in him. And the other one's just sitting there like Humpty Dumpty and gives absolutely nothing back. And it was just so frustrating. It made me wonder what it could have been if the Han character was the character of Sean Boswell. And that to me is the movie that this could have been. And I'm sure there was a draft of this somewhere because Justin Lin is a very talented filmmaker. Making him an outsider within a culture is a much more interesting storyline. And I'm just like, I'm lamenting and mourning the movie that could have been throughout this movie. And for every moment that I love, like the drifting and everything else, I'm just like, but why, why is this dude here? Yeah,
3: I understand. I totally understand. where you're coming from because this is a tired trope that we've seen so many times in Hollywood studio films where a white man, a straight white man, has to be the center of a narrative. Even if other characters are more interesting, even if other arcs are more interesting, studio thinking, especially back then in 2006, especially when they're two sequels into a franchise that at the time... They might very well after Tokyo Drift just dump off into direct-to-video land. There's so much that is probably very beholden in this movie to old ways of studio thinking, including the need to anchor this narrative around a white kid, a white man, a a white guy. Um, And that's why I, I really appreciate the execution of Tokyo Drift. The execution and how Justin Lin came in and... I think probably fought for a lot of things that fought against those those um, forces uh, of this of the this, 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 the studio system. Justin Lin came in and brought Sung Kang in, who he had cast as a character named Han in his previous movie. It was an indie movie championed at Sundance by Roger Ebert? Yep. Called Better Luck Tomorrow, which Jacqueline you you mentioned. People should definitely see that because it shows you. Just a few years before Tokyo Drift, where these actors, where Sung Kang, where Jason Tobin, who's also in Tokyo Drift and yeah. is back in Fast 9, where they and Justin Lin first came together artistically.
0: Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts.
2: I completely agree with both y'all that I think it would have been much more interesting to have Han be the central character because there's a term that I I don't want to butcher because, again, I just saw the movie for the first time last night that is used by both Lucas Black and who becomes his love interest. And it just it it means outsider that that you're not. Jin. Yes, that you you may be living here. You may be amongst us, but you're not truly one of us. But you also got that feel with Han. And so why not just have Han be the one who is who is going against this person? And and you could keep everything else in the movie pretty much the same way because the backstory between Han and DK, the fact that they are in business together and that Han may be pilfering a little bit, even if it's to do good, you're still stealing from a very scary organization. And so there's more than enough there in terms of conflict and in terms of humanity, because even as the movie plays out, one of the things that impressed me is that they did not make DK this evil one note villain. He certainly can play that, but his leering like evil menacing overpowering presence gets so much softer once you see who his bosses are who's mm-hmm. who his family is and so you actually see him just be this shy puppy dog after a while too so i think the conflict could have been there the only thing that i will say about lucas black is that he, I, I, Jacqueline, I, I don't disagree with you that in that scene on the balcony, it's it's totally Han's scene. And it, it, even in that one scene, that's where you can watch F9 and be like, oh, so much of this probably came from that one scene, from those couple lines. But there is just this weird, odd, maybe it's just because he's got that southern drawl and I'm from the south too. It's just this like weird off Offbeat charm that Lucas Black has that doesn't make him completely Pinocchio to me. I think that there is some real boy within that wooden puppet you're talking about.
1: I appreciate you being the kind part of this <laughs> podcast yet again, but let me just say no, no, <sighs> no, enough. no, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm sorry. And also, I will say that why are women just panty dropping for him? I never understand question. this dude showing up, everybody wants to be with him. Like at least Bow Wow was charming and like explained why he had the girls around him. You know, I'm the funny dude that'll make them laugh. What about this dude with the leer and lack of driving skills makes y'all want to be like, Oh yes.
3: Well, I that's more you. again, because it's written that way. Right. Yeah. So then the question <laughs> is why was it written that way? Yeah, and I think you can you can apply that sort of contemporary look back lens on so many movies that you probably already have talked about on this podcast alone, yes. right? Oh yeah, I definitely um, get
1: in trouble for basically being like, <laughs> no. "Why are all these heifers melting for this dude?"
3: Yes, but it's also <laughs> to me to me it's interesting to think not that not that this has directly to do with whether or not I agree with the tomato meter on this, but you also look at who was reviewing things at the time in 2006, it was still mostly white men in criticism in yeah. major publications. And I wonder if criticism was more diverse in 2006. I'm not saying I can predict how the review or the tomato meter would change, but I, I wonder how different the 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 texture of the critical reaction to this would have been under those circumstances. I
2: think it's, it's also the fact that it, it's certainly that's a big part of it. But you also look at 2006, where we were with franchises and where we were was still putting stars on the movie poster being the biggest thing as opposed to the franchise itself. And I think that critics by this point in the franchise, it's the third movie to come out, even though uh, chronologically it may not fit in to be the third movie. It, it comes later because some of the after films were prequels. And I would love for y'all to explain that to me in behind the scenes talk. But right now, it, it, it almost looks like they saw the third movie in a franchise and they said, OK, wait, you're the third movie in the Fast and Furious franchise, but neither one of the two lead stars from the first two movies are going to do this. This is all I'm already discounting this before I even walk into mm-hmm. the movie because I haven't heard of anybody in this movie. And so I think that that might have led into some of the short changing of Tokyo Drift too.
3: totally. Yeah. And then look what happened. It's, it's so interesting to me. And I don't know which segment this fits into, really, but. To me, the reconsideration of Tokyo Drift has a lot to do with the reconsideration of how the franchise then evolved after this movie, taking along key elements that Justin Lin injected in this movie along with it. That's probably a later, a yeah, later it's a thing, yeah, it's a crime thriller.
1: It's a crime thriller. There is a lot of crime thriller that underscores this, which was almost like the Easter egg in the first movie. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it was mostly racing and then they're doing some crime on the side. No, we are living in the world of crime. We're racing, although a very important part is almost like the icing on this cake. It's really about, you know, the deeper underworld of like, you know, what are you going to be able to do to afford these cars and and the sort of sacrifices you have to make? I, I think that's interesting that he set that up. Also, I just want to add this real quick too. Um, Justin Lin. Like, I just, I can't imagine Fast and Furious now without his influence. And although I will rail against Lucas Black every day until the day I die, the camera work and the way he framed this world, you want to get on a plane and immediately go just
2: dive into this world. You would he not directs- make it the hell out of this movie. And you can tell because watching it for the first time again, the racing scenes in this movie, you so easily, you didn't have to have every one of those shots in that climax race coming down the mountain. You could have shortchanged it. You could mm-hmm. have shortchanged that scene that ends in what we think at the time is Han's death. You, you you could have cut corners there, but Justin Lin just sunk his teeth into this thing. And he saw that script and he's like, I am going to make the hell out of this movie and especially the racing scenes. But he's also such a talented director because he can make a scene that could have just been dead on arrival. Like, sorry, Jacqueline, where Lucas Black and his love interest they, they go on their first date and and they get the they, they get the sushi and they're drinking Rockstar, which is anything more two thousand six than those giant oversized Rockstar no, drinks. That no, the, the the
1: scene <laughs> like, underscored K- with Kid drinks. Rock. <laughs> it, the scene <laughs> underscored with Kid Rock was where I was like, "Who? We are really back
2: in two thousand? Oh, you mean just with the
3: minute two of this movie,
2: right? But that <laughs> oh, but that scene what what when they're on their date, I I did feel a human connection there. And so I I totally would buy into the fact that this movie would have been better with Han as the lead and we didn't necessarily need this, white guy, Sean, to be in the movie at all. But that scene, I think that it speaks to Justin Lin as a director that he's able to do these incredible drifting scenes. Like Jen pointed out, we're mostly practically done, but he can also have this quiet, intimate moment that actually does resonate. So he's got a lot of tools in his kit. Jen, is there something else besides one of the drifting scenes that you look at in this movie and you say, this is why, damn it, this is a fresh movie?
3: Yeah, well, to me, if... It is um, a movie, one of, the, one of the many fast sequels that exists within genre parameters, like you were saying, Jacqueline, as a, a crime thriller. But it is also carrying on the tradition from Fast 1 and Fest 2 at this point of really being about found family and brotherhood and the mentorship between Sean and Han. That's why we care about yeah. what happens. That's also what drives the, the action. This movie treats action not as not as something shallow or an afterthought, but as something that has a, the potential to carry metaphor and to advance character. And that is the, the way that all good action operates. And it, it is laden in, in the very fundamentals of, of uh, the Sean character, in America, in the in the prologue, basically, when he's racing in America, all he knows how to do is race with rage and go fast. But in Tokyo, he learns that that's not all that you need to to really like win and and ascend to that the next level. You need to be able to focus. And um, he is a brash American, which is the only other way I would argue it does work to have a white guy at the center, is because this movie points out how it points out the folly of white American male cockiness. Yeah. He's wrong. He doesn't know the the best way to to drive, let alone to race. And he has to learn. And he learns from Han, which I think is important. Um, So to me, again, a lot of this comes down to the execution and the ways that Justin Lin must, that that he made this his own in ways that if you look closely there are all these really cool things like you have real life drift racers given cameos in this movie they're literally included in the texture and the text of this world um this is one of the first movies that i saw that had a cool asian-american character that wasn't defined by his asianness being the han character and that's one of the reasons why to me the han character has been an important character um and also really compelling so, so there are a lot of things that still work for me really well in this movie uh, around the narrative and and how the themes work, how the characters and the relationships work, and also it's funny in weird, random ways, like Bow Wow's Hulk car. Who, who would have?
2: Yeah. yeah, the what Hulk that? car, and this you is know? before the MCU was in full you know? swing, kiddies. Exactly. This is, this is coming off of Ang Lee's Hulk movie from 2004, before the other Incredible Hulk that was part of the MCU. But it's a really cool car, and I will give a shout to Bow Wow because I I thought he was great. I, I thought He's he was so just, good in this movie. He was perfect. Although Jack and I will disagree with you. Sometimes the, uh, the 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 funny, energetic guy doesn't always get all the girls. Just rushing <laughs> to, him.
4: Um,
2: but he was just so. Endearing and anybody, I, I think he's crucial in this movie for this reason. Anybody that Lucas, so you can be Lucas Black, but anybody that gets cool with Bow Wow to me or that Bow Wow gravitates to in this movie, I'm like, all right, I instantly trust that person just as much as Han. Han likes you, I like you. Bow Wow likes you, I like you. And I think those, that confluence of characters that I was already pulling for from the moment they're on camera, taking this kid in. I'm like, all right, Lucas Black, Sean, you're I guess you're in my crew, too, because these two people like you.
1: Yeah, I I loved his character. I felt um, again, I just um, I know that this was actually I mean, we'll get into this behind the scenes written for Vin Diesel. Like this was actually going to be his movie. And and obviously, I think the Han character is going to be a part of that, too. But I I do think that there's an interesting dynamic if it would have been Vin having Bow Wow as his sort of like little, you know, sidekick <laughs> in a lot of ways. I think that would have been a very interesting dynamic and also still adding Han into it. But it's another testament to me about how I feel and I will stand behind what I consider the lack of of acting that was given to us by our lead is he's out acted by literally the dude who was best known for hip hop beats at that point. Like this dude was yeah. not, you know, Bow Wow had done movies. I'm not saying that he didn't. He d- had done movies before this, but he's literally getting out acted by what some people might consider a '90s um, karaoke trivia question. Like, come on, kid, this is your <laughs> profession. Wow, wow. So good, but this
3: though. is. I mean, it must be said. This does have a low key, like a deep cast. You yeah, see, it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leonardo Nam, who it yeah. is now really well known for being on Westworld, for example, Mm -hmm. you have Brian T who's, um, who's I think really good as DK. Uh, You have Sonny Chiba, a living legend. Yeah. Uh, So, and, and uh, Mark, you, you referred to the character Neela, who's Sean's love interest. who's played by Natalie Kelly. I, I always wish that we saw more of her coming back. We see so many characters come back to this franchise over the years And it would be cool to, like, have her back in along with Suki.
2: Yeah. Yes. Those are my two
3: on hey, my wish list.
2: And I what? love seeing her drift. I, I love that she got a scene to drift. And, and it was it was that, that point break sort of scene where in point break, it's the surfing scene where now you're ingratiated with this with this new culture, but you're also going to make out with Lori Petty because you're the last <laughs> two in the ocean. And this one, when they're all just drifting, it's this beautiful night shot and they're going up the mountain and you see how adept she is at it. And so it's like, well, yeah, let, let's have her back in the franchise. We're welcoming everybody back. It seems like, again, haven't seen the movie yet, but F9 is just going to be the this big backyard family barbecue. And so get her back too.
1: Want to add this too as well, because I want to make sure that that some white boys get their due in this movie. Major Boswell, (laughs) give it up for the dad. He had like the only character arcs that this character was basically given throughout the story. A lot of it came from him. In that moment, when he was fixing up the car, it's expositional. It's only there so that that way they can later soup up that car for the grand finale but it's so interesting to see him do it because it says so much about like oh this is how Lucas probably you know first became in love with cars you know like he knew dad really liked cars he's probably a toddler handing him uh tools underneath uh the the head of the the engine head of his car and i really i thought that was just so well done and he's he's a is an absent dad but he still played that to where it wasn't one-dimensional. Again, every character around our lead has dimension, has character, drives the story. <laughs> and this dude is just like paper thin. You're right,
3: though. But but that is also one of the themes that reconnects back, especially when you see Fast 9. It's really interesting to see Justin Lin come back to the franchise in Fast 9 and to see how much, in many ways, Tokyo Drift is a really great companion piece Not just because of little Easter eggs that make uh, that are connected, but themes like that, like fathers and sons and family and bonding and the the, also the metaphor, the car metaphor of how they reconstruct Sean's Sean's uh, engine into his dad's car at the end Mm -hmm. of Tokyo Drift uh, so that he can, you know, assume his final form, uh, you know, Um, all those metaphors. Could be very cheesy and probably some people out there think that they're cheesy but within the realm of a studio action movie that was barely saved from going direct to video I think it's actually kind of remarkable that those little little bits exist.
2: I think that's yeah. an excellent point. I, I have one last quick question before we move on to behind the scenes because I, I do want to talk about, Jen, you're uh, being at the forefront of the campaign for hashtag Justice for Han and, and being somewhat involved in getting Han back into this franchise. But what, what, am I correct in assuming, Jacqueline and Jen, you all saw this movie in a theater in 2006 when it first came out? Or did you wait until it was on DVD?
3: I did I saw not it in, see a, it in a theater.
1: Did I you? Did, I did see it in a theater. I'm pretty sure, like, this is what the problem is, is because I drank a lot in the early 2000s and mid 2000s. And so, girl, (laughs) I ain't got to worry about a midlife crisis. I did enough. Um, Let me, so it was either this or Too Fast, Too Furious. And the reason why I remember it is because after the movie, that's what it was. It was an Alamo Draft House triple feature. Yeah, so the Alamo used Alamo to do house. Yeah, the Alamo Draft House used to do this thing where they would do like a night with something. They they've done like the Hobbit feast where you watch all the Lord of the Rings and they like feed you the whole time. It was a fast and the furious and I think it was um those three films together, you could kind of watch it as like a triple feature. And uh, because I remember afterwards people doing donuts in the parking lot and
2: I'm like, (laughs) you guys have more sense. I'm telling you, um, you guys have more testosterone than sense. There you go. Make sure you have a friend pick you up after you see any of these movies. God. Um, The reason why I ask is just because I I want just quickly y'all's reaction to that post-credit scene that we saw. I guess the last scene in the movie. It's not really a post-credit tag, but when the reveal of Vin Diesel Is there? Did that do anything to you when you first saw it? Because me, not knowing that's coming, when I watched it this week, I got chills. I was like, "Oh my god, you didn't know? I had no idea." Wow.
3: I mean, wow. I knew these movies so were linked because,
2: because I remembered Han was, i all I knew is that I remembered Han was the guy, but I couldn't even remember if like you saw him escape from the car before Statham does it. So I, I, I had no context for that. And I did not know that Vin <laughs> showed up at the end. But when, when, when Bow Wow says another great line delivered by Bow Wow, when he says he says he's, fa- he's, he's, he's Han's family, I'm like, I know who it is. But I didn't even <laughs> think they'd show it. I just thought they might show the car and then mm. cut, fade to black. But no, they got Vin back. And that's another cool story to talk about out in a, in a couple minutes, but I had no idea Vin was, was going to show up.
3: That's amazing. I'm so happy for you that you had that
2: <laughs> moment. All right. Um, let's get into all this um, in, in behind the scenes then, because we, we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to tee up. So let's hit the music, Brian. Yeah. So it's so funny because apparently Justin Lin met with Vin Diesel for like four hours one time. Uh, talking to Vin about the franchise, and this is before Tokyo Drift was made, but he he just kind of gave Vin his his play-by-play for where he thought this franchise could go, and they apparently mapped out a lot of it that night. But Vin still wasn't on board with doing the cameo until he secured, he didn't get paid for it. He said, in lieu of payment for this cameo, I just want y'all to give me the rights to Riddick back. So he got the rights to the Riddick franchise back from Universal in exchange for doing this cameo. And apparently test screenings lit up the audience. One of the things is that apparently the the character of Han, played by Sung Kang, got a a perfect 100% score. Every test audience that saw this movie loved that character. And I read that it's the highest test for an individual character. In the history of Universal Pictures, which is awesome and well-deserved. And then audiences also lost their minds at the end when Vin Diesel did show up. So that's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, it stuck the landing. Anytime a movie sticks the landing, audiences will forgive it and critics usually don't care.
2: Yeah, can you just give us a little bit of background as far as the Justice for Han movement and and all the cool barbecues that you do and why Jason Statham still isn't invited as of right now? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, Okay, so yes. Uh, Where do I... There's one thing that you just mentioned about Vin Diesel basically bartering the cameo in Tokyo Drift for the Riddick rights. That's really... I think that's another... Moment, which uh, in which Tokyo Drift is then pivotal in ways that you probably wouldn't have been able to to predict back then, because then uh, when the the Vin Diesel cameo comes in at the end of Tokyo Drift, that predates the Avenger the the that predates the MCU doing something similar with credit scenes, so. And now, like, how many franchises do that? Like, literally all of them. <laughs> so it was kind of a brilliant stroke to um, to tie the room together with Vin Diesel cameo at the end of Tokyo Drift. Um, and also a brilliant, I think, probably brilliant business move on, on, on Vin Diesel's part, because after that, Vin Diesel then rejoins the franchise as a star in Fast and Furious, Fast Ampersand Furious, which has a very confusing title, the fourth movie <laughs> that Vin Diesel fully comes back for, he is now producer on. Mm. And of course now, by by now in the franchise, Fast 9, we see that he has really exercised, he's flexed that, pr- that producer muscle ever <laughs> since. So in many ways, I think Tokyo Drift is a, a really important formative f- installment of this franchise both on screen and behind the scenes. It's very fascinating to me. But Justice for Han is something that a couple years ago caught on on social media. I cannot take credit for it, but it was something that I thought was important to to amplify. And the reason is twofold. Hashtag Justice for Han, right, was the hashtag um, when Fast 7 came out. And in Fast 7, if we all remember... By this time, the death of Han, seen in Tokyo Drift, has been now sort of rehashed many times in the franchise. It's been retconned, which is another thing that this franchise did, um, really interestingly, that other franchises really haven't done. Retconning is, is I forget what retcon actually stands for. Nerds.
2: It's it's pretty much when retroactive. You take Leti, it played by Michelle Rodriguez, and you're like, oh no, she didn't really die. Yeah. It's
3: <laughs> you like rewrite, you rewrite the past so that you can move on in like a, a new. On, in a new trajectory.
2: You ducktails so, it. You rewrite
3: history. <laughs> Life is just a mystery. Um, <laughs> yes. So hashtag justice for Han came out when fans of the Han character saw what was done to the Han legacy within the canon of the film, of the films, which is really interesting. At one point, you have a reveal where just Jason Statham's character is introduced as Han's killer, as the guy who really was actually responsible for for T-boning Han at the end of Tokyo Drift. And you're like, oh my God, what a jerk. And then he becomes the, the villain in the next installment. Well, then by Fast 7, the franchise employed Jason Statham's character differently by giving him a redemption. Uh, he saves... Vin Diesel's, he saves Dom's baby and in return gets an invite to the family barbecue. Now, I think that rang very untrue for a lot of fans who like Dom would have, would have, would have would have uh, protected the memory of Han and what that meant, what he meant to the family. And so it felt like a little bit of a betrayal, hence the hashtag justice for Han. And so for me, I wrote I was, like, just really happy to get Justice for Han stories into the LA Times. Um, (laughs) And the headlines in the LA Times. Uh, Because another thing, the, the other dimension to Justice for Han is that when you do something like that to even an inactive but core member of a franchise ensemble who is the only prominent Asian character in a franchise like this... It feels dirty. It It feels, it doesn't feel right. It's kind of like what Jacqueline's saying about, you know, like everything she's pointing out, very rightfully so, about the optics of even Tokyo Drift. You have to do better uh, as a studio, as a filmmaker, right? Especially when so much of this franchise's success has been built around the idea of family. Well, what does that mean when you say, well, actually... Han, this character who also is one of our only Asian characters persistently in this in this franchise, when his death doesn't mean that much. So and I think that's yeah. I think those are the reasons. Sorry, it's long winded, but I think those are the two reasons why people wanted to see the franchise do better for him. But also, at by that point, the this franchise had shown. Um, a willingness to embrace what I would call soap opera logic, (laughs) where anything is kind of possible. You know, like as you mentioned, Letty came back, you know, like you're always evolving. Dude, Um, it's it's superheroes with carburetors
1: instead of capes. And so if you can believe Thor's hammer, if you can believe that Captain America had super soldier, (laughs) you can believe that Han and Letty are back. Also, I will just say, it's the it's the expendability of minority mm-hmm. characters Yeah, that, that's what what Jen was kind of touching on and and granted they luckily because of the internet and and Justin Lin has been very forthwith to say that internet virality and how many people were were passionate about it and people like you Jen and other writers who wrote about it uh so eloquently is what allowed them To then make this a thing, because to your point, this was a character that they had already dealt with. They did not need to do this, but they wanted to. And so they really did. I mean, you got Justin wearing Justice for Han uh, (laughs) T-shirts on set Mm -hmm. like this dude was playing into it. And it does show the power of fandom can do good.
2: Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. Yeah, a couple quick notes about that, too. So first of all, uh, Brian Perez, our incredible engineer, uh, chimed in in the chat with, RETCON stands for retroactive continuity. And so you're going back and you're changing how the continuity works. So Brian, once again, that's why I buy you beers on the Comedy Store patio. And (laughs) if if you look at the MCU, again, this is this foundation was built before the MCU. And so while the MCU is celebrated for having some measure of diversity, I would still say that the Fast and Furious franchise inc- has the most inclusiveness that you will see in a major Hollywood studio franchise. And I don't think that it's the, the, the next closest is all that close. I think if this mm-hmm. is a race, then I think that Fast and Furious is beating everyone by a wide margin. What's really cool about this is that two things is that making this movie, they had to do a little guerrilla style shooting, apparently, because some of those downtown shots that they got to Tokyo, you were not allowed to get a film permit there. And so Justin Lin literally and people signed up for this. He didn't make people do this, but they would be shooting. They knew they had about 20, 30 minutes to get a shot. And if the cops showed up, they would tell the cops that somebody else like a P.A., a production assistant, was the director and they would take them to jail so they would have to spend the night in jail but so that Justin Lynn himself would not have to go to jail this happened 6 times Making this movie. Six different people play the role of Justin Lin going to jail so that Justin Lin, the actual director, could continue directing the movie, which is bonkers to me. And then the last little stinger is that after this movie comes out and Justin Lin and Sun Kang are hanging out, they're driving somewhere in California. They stop at of all places an Arby's, which is my road trip go to. Apparently, they get out of the car in Arby's and there's a bunch of teenagers hanging out and they all recognized Han from Tokyo Drift. And that is when both of those fellows knew, hey, this really was culturally resonant. This is a touchstone. And maybe it just it, I'm not saying it planted the seed, but maybe it fertilized it a little bit to say we need to get Han back in the fold here.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, there are two things that you just touched on there that I want to point people more to. Um, the story of Justin Lin, Lin having stand-ins on set in Tokyo who could be arrested in his place <laughs> because they were stealing shots guerrilla style is one of my favorite tidbits about the making of Tokyo Drift, um, which he shared at a Q&A that I moderated at the New Beverly many years ago that the writer Steven Saito wrote up on his website, The Movable Fest. So you can go read Steven's recap of that entire Q&A because there's so many more delicious, amazing, really fun, couldn't happen ever again, especially in 2021, stories about the making of Tokyo Drift in that. Um, also, did you catch the MC Hammer cameo in Tokyo Drift?
2: No, I I noticed the posters when he first gets to Tokyo and he's and he's on the escalator. I see the posters of MC Hammer. Is Hammer himself actually in the movie?
3: No, that is the cameo. And but that was deliberate. That was that was put there in appreciation because MC Hammer helped save Justin Lin's indie movie Better Luck Tomorrow. I did know that. Oh, he that. he came through with, with funds so that Justin could finish that movie, which was his first solo directing feature mm-hmm. after Justin Lin had randomly met Hammer at like a trade show or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I like to say, I like to put this out to remind people the Fast and Furious franchise as we know it would not exist if not for Better Luck Tomorrow, if not for Justin Lin, if not for also MC Hammer.
2: Yeah, I wonder if that's why so many of those titles have two in it, like Too Legit to Quit, which is, Ah. you know, from the mid-90s. So to this day, Justin Lin prays just to make it today. Uh. There's so much great stuff behind the scenes of this movie, and and we touched on some of it. The last thing I'll mention is is the cinematographer of this Stephen Winden, also shot Deep Blue Sea? So we all bring it back to Deep Blue Sea for our buddy. <laughs> oh,
0: Mark
1: I have Hochmeier.
2: one. Um, I do yeah, have you know, one, Jack. And I was going to ask you if you have any last tidbits on this uh, behind the scenes of this movie that just you would not think it when it came out, but has just spawned so many great conversations. And I, I this has been another one of them.
1: So this one is related more to Justin Lin and sort of his better luck tomorrow fast saga, because for folks that don't know, because of Justin Lin, better luck tomorrow is considered part of the canon because the characters are the same. Although Universal wouldn't uh, agree to that if you probably ask them if you ask Justin Lin. Better Luck Tomorrow is the prequel to the Fast Saga and literally technically kicked it all off. But the thing I will mention about this um, when we talk about Asian representation. Better Luck Tomorrow is is a crime movie um, in which the characters do some very nefarious things. And we talked about Roger Ebert championing that movie because let's be honest, without Better Luck Tomorrow being championed by critics like Roger Ebert at that time, Justin Lin does not become a director who can then get the movie sold, who could then get the movie into theaters and could then go on to do greater things. It's all linear and it all relates to that. And an early review can literally put you on a path to great things. so and it's
3: not just a review that that yeah. Roger Ebert contributed. Yeah. The story yeah. is. The story yeah. is wild. And yeah, it's go one ahead. of those magical Sundance film festival stories. Yes. They take Better Luck Tomorrow to Sundance. And it's a huge moment for Justin Lin. It's his first feature. It's a huge moment for the, the cast of young actors who went on to great things, including Sung Kang, John Cho. Um, and at one of the screenings at Sundance... Third one. Third what, one. Oh, my God. (laughs) Jeff!
1: I'm on it. Third one. details on
3: her facts. At the third screening at Sundance, somebody in the audience Q&A stands up. A white, a white man.
1: Yes, white man. I I actually don't.
3: I don't think I've I've seen the video. It's a white. Yeah, there's a a video on YouTube. Yeah. Who stands up to shame the filmmakers for making a movie that made Asians look bad. Like, as in, how could you do this to your people? Kind of thing. The whole entire point of, Better Luck Tomorrow is that it dispels and, in fact, implodes the model minority myth, which still persists to this day, um, around Asian-Americans. It's about teens, and it's based on a true story, too, a true crime. It's about a bunch of overachieving teens who get bored and break bad and start doing crimes, and it escalates out of control. And at this Q&A, this man stands up to berate the filmmakers for how could you do this, and then Roger Ebert stands up and the video again is online and says they should be able anybody should be able to, to make whatever story they want. And he defends this movie. And because of that, the um uh, the longtime film publicist David Magdale told me many years later he was working on this movie because again, this movie was such a, a community effort. David Magdale specializes in lifting up films. the Asian American community and, and filmmakers of color at the time at Sundance, it was before the era of screeners. It was way before the era of screener links. They got such a bump in visibility from Roger Ebert standing up to champion this film and defend its right to exist that the entire, a uh, uh, hardworking PR team, cleared out, went to that one grocery shop that everybody goes to in town in Park City, cleared out all of their blank VHS tapes and scrambled to make copies of the film, like press copies they could put in critics mailboxes the next day. Wow. And then they got, you know, they got distribution eventually and it it launched so many careers, but it, it really does speak to, as Jacqueline's saying, the importance of, of critics, not just covering, but, But championing and standing up, you know, like if we had more of those Ebert stand-up moments, imagine.
2: Yeah, that's and it's
3: a big moment. Yeah,
1: such an
2: incredible story, and and hearing it is so inspiring. That my sports card collector brain immediately goes to how much are those VHS tapes worth today? If you get (laughs) one of those, I mean, you could probably finance another Fast and Furious movie with that. I mean, that is that is such a cool collector's item and and such a worthy thing to champion that and this has all just been such a great conversation again from a movie that a lot of people thought was was an afterthought when it came out was as Jen rightfully said I mean in in danger of almost being this this direct to video directed DVD sort of sequel where it ends up being so important in the greater franchise that makes billions and billions of dollars for Universal so a lot of fun here. We, we we're going to move on now, but I do have one quick trivia question that we're going to ask on the other side of our mailbag. So, Brian, let's hear that music. All right. So, this is from our esteemed member of the Ketchup Crew, which is what we call all of our lovely fans out there across the world, Alex. Hellier, He says hello from down under friends. Hello, Alex. You don't know me, but I feel like a wallflower to your friendship. And that's enough to make me feel like we're friends. My wife and I recently had a boy, which we named Mark after listening to this podcast. Not really. We called him uh, okay. <laughs> I was literally Still about good. to be
1: Mark, man, I making will.
2: waves. You know what? I think Alex probably knows that would have put way too much pressure on me. So thank you, Alex, for naming him Dax. Uh, Alex continues, but it's given me a lot of long nights to finally watch the extended editions of The Hobbit. Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. Alex is here for the campy Three Stooges quest of the dwarves and Middle Earth lore. And then he says, Mark has got to be with me. Come on, Mark. Yours sincerely, Alex Hellier." Alex, unfortunately, because you named your kid Dax and not Mark, I did not have to be with you. I'm not with you yet, but again, I have not watched The Hobbits, uh, the extended editions in depth while caring for a newborn. I just have a very frisky 14-year-old dog that is running around the back of my curtains. So I have not investigated them, but maybe it is something that our podcast can revisit once upon a time. So quickly, before I, I, I we get out of here, Jen, you have these, these legendary Fast and Furious themed barbecues that I just wanted to get a, a quick question in about. You started this and you've done a barbecue mm-hmm. theme for every Fast and Furious mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. You've seen Fast 9, without giving away any in-depth spoilers to the movie. Do you, have you already had that barbecue? Is it planned? Is there gonna be a specific theme?
3: Look, if you're fishing for an invite, Mark, yes you're invited oh my god this is great uh no it hasn't happened yet because we're also in a pandemic people come on are barbecues even happening i don't know i actually don't know i think
1: barbecues should happen more than some of the other things happening at least most of those are outside a thousand
3: percent a thousand
1: (laughs) percent facts Mm -hmm. anyway but i I would i i'm with it i think you Uh, should go to a a gen karaoke party first though mark because Jen, um, since we were talking about film festivals, I might also add both (laughs) Jen and I are film festival frequents and love every chance that we get to go. It's one of the things I'm missing most about this pause that we're in. And Jen is a karaoke goddess. Like I'm literally serious. Like she will do Bonnie Tyler. She will do Celine Dion and she will bring it.
3: I will do Celine Dion and I will do the Titanic song. I don't care who's out there in the audience. It's my time. Yeah. It's my time when I'm up there, and I will, <laughs> I will sing. My heart will go on. And Jack, Jack, has the voice of an angel? A
4: Shush. dang. Angel. Rumor has it. Shush. That's why see, I
2: see. I'm. I've been doing stand up long enough to know. I in no way am I going to do karaoke if I have to follow you to. I'm happy to open. <laughs> and just as an homage to Tokyo Drift, I'll do that Kid Rock song. Whatever he's racing to. At no, the beginning
3: of the movie. that's okay. No, no, no. <laughs> No. No. Okay.
2: no, Well, I bring that scene up for this reason, because the one trivia question I have about Tokyo Drift involves that opening scene when Sean, played by Lucas Black, who Jacqueline loves, is racing the high school bully. Can you name the child star or the TV sitcom that that high school bully starred in in the mid 90s?
1: Yes, obviously he is the Do you most have any most yeah. harder trivia question. I know that I, I was don't... it. Uh, I know it's Zachary and he was in he was on Home Improvement another series that mm-hmm. should stay in the 90s Ta-
3: Zachary Ty Bryan
1: yeah
2: and mm-hmm. he was who was, he was the older brother on Home Improvement was it Brad
1: was he Brad
2: <laughs> was he I Brad my, my, oh yeah, he was Brad. I was
1: right he's Brad
2: Brian Brian gives his confirmation that he was I mean did anybody care
1: we were all watching JTT anyway did anybody care I was care? watching Home Improvement <laughs> no oh, but you Lucy. were watching for for Jonathan Taylor Thomas like did anybody care about oh, Brad? I didn't catch that yeah I was watching for JTT yeah like and that was um, Biel Christmas movie
2: yeah Can't I'll be home it. for Christmas <laughs> yeah I, I think a oh lot of people oh my
3: gosh yeah most yes. folks would
2: make the assumption that, that Mark <laughs> wants his family Got out of the Air Force and settled in Virginia that we loved Home Improvement. If that show was on and my dad was in the room, he made us turn it off. He hated Home Improvement for some reason. Could not respond to Home Improvement. And you know what? I've never given it a full watch, but from what I have seen, I think old Mark Ellis was right. I think
3: Mark Sr. was 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 Mark Sr. himself a tool man? He was not a tool
2: man. No, he just he he just did not like the show. And upon the limited rewatching I've done of it, I think he was right. It just just didn't hit. Didn't hit me. Didn't hit me. More of a uh, friends Martin Seinfeld kind of 90s kid with a shout out honorable mention to the Fresh Prince. So thank you so much. Jan Yamato, this has been such a, just an enlightening, fun conversation to have about a movie that may have never crossed my radar. I could have gone on seeing these Fast and Furious movies forever when they inevitably cross over with dinosaurs or volcanoes or outer space Mm -hmm. and I never Mm -hmm. would have known the importance or how much fun I would have had watching Tokyo Drift. So I am just thankful to you in this podcast for giving me that opportunity. Where can everybody check out the stuff you're working on with LA Times, with with, with all of the many things that you have going on?
3: Um, You can read me in the LA Times. You can listen to me. I actually would love if people would check out the podcast that I did at the Times called Asian Enough, which exists to center and share Asian American stories. Sung Kang was on it in our first season last year. And his story, his personal story, is really cool. I encourage people to hear about how he went from being a Georgia kid to being in the Fast and Furious franchises, dying many times on screen in <laughs> this one franchise <laughs> alone, and now coming back. So uh, I highly encourage people to check out uh, also his. I don't have a movie recommendation really right now, but I do have a podcast recommendation, and that is Song's podcast called Sung's Garage, which he launched last year.
2: And you were on an episode of that, I believe. Is that right? I was
3: talking about Justice for Han. Yeah. Yes. Which was wild. It's like you have barbecues, you you have your first Fast and Furious barbecue. Your second one is called and by you I mean me. My second one was called Too Fast to Barbecue, of course. And the third one was Fast and Furious Barbecue Drift. The Han Lu Memorial b- bar- Barbecue. <laughs> wow, Han Lu Memorial. We recreated the memorial, um, life life-sized memorial that you see at his funeral scene. Wow. Um, and I explicitly banned anybody from bringing Jason Statham to this barbecue. He's <laughs> still on time out from my barbecues. We'll see how that goes.
2: Well, yeah, in keep- the future. Keep Jacqueline and I posted on when the F9 barbecue is. If there's a spare seat, I would love to occupy it. And I will raise a Corona, whatever Dom Mm -hmm. Toretto uh, allows us to drink. And I will get very excited about being there. On that special day, it has been a blast as always, y'all. If you want to be like Alex, you want to be a member of our ketchup crew. You can email us anytime RT is wrong at Rotten dot com. RT is wrong at Rotten dot com. Let us know what you like about the show. Let us know your comments, your thoughts and of course, your recommendations for a topic we should talk about. On a future episode, wherever you listen to us, we appreciate if you subscribe, you rate, review, whatever your platform advises you to do. We urge you to perform that task and help us get even higher up in the ratings so wrapping up the show here for our entire hardworking team behind the scenes here at rotten tomatoes including brian perez our engineer producer lucy the one and only our amazing guest jen yamato my esteemed co-host jacqueline coley i am merely mark ellis saying uh go check out f9 but don't do it until after you see fast and furious tokyo drift we'll talk to you next week